Hello, I am the host of Shifting Culture, Joshua Johnson. I just want to come on before the episode and tell you all thank you for listening. Did you know that big things are coming for Shifting Culture and you can be a part of it? We have just launched a Patreon. When you become a monthly patron to the show, you will get our episode ad-free, get early access to episodes, be able to download episode guides, and get bonus shows. Go to patreon.com slash shifting culture to support all that we are doing. Your support means that we can continue to help the body of Christ look more like Jesus. Again, go to patreon.com slash shifting culture. Thank you so much. Now, on to the episode. Hello, and welcome to the Shifting Culture Podcast, in which we have conversations about the culture we create and the impact we can make. We long to see the body of Christ look like Jesus. I'm your host, Joshua Johnson. Go to shiftingculturepodcast.com to interact and donate. And don't forget to hit the follow button on your favorite podcast app to be notified when new episodes come out each Tuesday. And while you're at it, leave a rating and review. It's pretty easy to hit that five-star button, and it helps attract new listeners. Previous guests on the show have included Michael Carrion, Brian Zons, and David Fitch. You can go back, listen to those episodes, and more. But today's guest is Christopher Watkin. Chris holds a PhD in modern French philosophy from Cambridge University. After lecturing at Cambridge, he moved to Australia and now teaches at Monash University in Melbourne, where he lives with his wife Allison and their two children. He is the author of 10 books, including his latest, Biblical Critical Theory, How the Bible Story Makes Sense of Modern Life and Culture. We have a great conversation around analyzing culture, language, and thought, how the Bible story helps us view and critique culture and the world we live in, and we get practical examples of how to do it. It's a fascinating conversation, so sit back, relax, and enjoy my conversation with Christopher Watkin. Well, Chris, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for coming on. Thank you so much, Joshua. It's wonderful to be here. Yeah, I'm really excited to talk to you and really dive into your latest book, Biblical Critical Theory, um, and what that looks like. Um, but, you know, I'd love to, as as looking at your, your vast work, um, it seems eclectic, uh, but there is a thread what what kind of what a what is a thread to your work like that that holds things together and says this is what I'm passionate about? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. I've had to think about this quite a lot over the years. I, I think what ties everything together, and it wasn't conscious at the time, but looking back, I think it works. Is that it, in everything I've written, I'm trying to understand how different people see the world make mm. sense of the world yeah. especially people who are not like I am who think differently and live differently to me to, to try and work out why people arrive at the positions they arrive at why they're excited by what they're excited by and what different positions feel like and look like from the inside I suppose mm. I think that's a, that's a crucial stance, I think, for us as humans to try and interact and to see uh, where we're coming from and what we're doing. And I think if we're open and curious like that and asking questions and trying to understand people of other cultures and other faiths and in different perspectives, um, I think it'll actually go a long way as <laughs> as humans to try to interact that way. And oftentimes we don't try to see things from different perspectives. Um, one of the things is as you entered into into French and learning French and then uh, East uh, European philosophy and modern thought and all of this, what what was something that that was a surprising thing of learning another language and started to think uh, in a different language uh, in French? Did it change your perspective and the way that you started to think about things? I think the short answer is yes. Let me try and <laughs> dig around in my mind for an example of that. There's this wonderful term 
slightly clumsy but really helpful in language learning called lingua cultures. And it's the idea that every language isn't just sort of a neutral set of words for describing the world, but it brings its own culture with it and reflects its own culture. And um, you can't learn a language without inhabiting a culture if you're going to learn it properly. Yeah. And I think I think that's right. And I think the way that French people and the French language understands the world um, is... I guess from an English speaker's point of view, you could say it's uncanny in the sense that there's there's so much overlap with mm, with an yeah. Anglophone outlook, but but at significant moments, it's just a little bit from an English point of view off kilter or strange that you never feel completely at home as an English speaker in it. And I just find that wonderful and fascinating <laughs> that the French have this um, idea about their own language traditionally that it's. Um, Cartesian, that it's clear and distinct ideas. And I remember it being explained to me in terms of the difference between Shakespeare and the French playwright Racine. So, you know, Shakespeare has this amazing vocabulary. I don't know how many words he has, but it's, it's yeah. absolutely huge. Um, and Racine is, is very clipped and precise. He's got a very few words, but he makes them really, really count. And um, there's, there's a difference there in the way that that poetry and, and culture see themselves inhabiting the world. Mm. You know, you could write a whole dissertation on if you wanted yeah. to um, dig into that. Um, and look, if that's true for English and French, and, you know, and within English and French, you've got dialects and there's, you know, Canadian English, US English, lots of US yeah. Englishes, lots of UK Englishes. You know, so you could do this within languages as well. And if that's true for, you know, cultures that stress so much of their heritage and how much more is that the case um, for cultures that are that are more distant in terms of the the ideas and the heritage that they share? Yeah, that's true. I mean, my wife grew up in uh, on the eastern side of the U.S., uh, more in the south, uh, southern culture. I grew up in the Pacific Northwest in the Seattle area, um, and so there are still times. Oftentimes, my wife says something, and I'm like, "What? What is that?" <laughs> it was a, and it comes from a, a totally different background and culture. And I'm trying to interact in those spaces, but then it opens me up and says, ah, you know, it makes me a little bit more curious about where she came from, who she is, how she interacts in the world. Um, even though I know her deeply, um, it actually opens up a little curiosity for me. Um, and so how, how do we enter into these, these relationships? Even, I mean, I could say my wife and I are a cross-cultural relationship, even though we're both, you know, white Americans that uh, love Jesus and we have a lot of similarities, but I think every relationship is a little bit cross-cultural. So how do we enter into those to open ourselves up into more curiosity? I suppose a first step, a crucial necessary first step is to realize that your way of looking at the world, my way of looking at the world, isn't simply common sense. It isn't simply the place where everybody starts and then some people add some weird stuff onto my sort of common sense view. Yeah. Um, and I think that's one thing that learning a language does for you. It allows you to see your own language and culture from the outside mm. as, as someone looking in on it and say, oh, yeah, that is actually really quite odd about my own culture. I'd never really noticed that before because it was the only way that I'd ever encountered the world. But now I've now that I've got two possibilities, you know, I can um, look at the world through the lens of the, the English with which I grew up or, or I can, you know, immerse myself in French culture, I begin to see idiosyncrasies yeah. and strangenesses and sometimes even contradictions in, in my own way of looking at the world. And that I think is such a healthy um realization to come to not that you throw the baby out with the bathwater you think oh you know it's all relative nobody nobody has any sort of meaningful angle on the world but you realize you know what i've got a position too mm -hmm. and my position isn't neutral in the sense of everybody starts where i start and then some people become weird and some people just stay like me you know normal <laughs> and the the measure for everybody else um and and i I think I think that's the first step, just mm. to to realize that none of us 
are the referee or the umpire on the pitch. We're all players, you know, we've all got got a dog in the fight. Yeah. Um, and no one person's language or culture is necessarily the the, the measure against which all others should be judged. Mm. You know what it, I th- I find this uh, your your book really fascinating, um, and I'd love to get into you know just as a, as a background. My dad wrote a book uh, on biblical worldview integration, and so he wanted to try and figure out how do I actually view the world through the lens of the Bible, and then integrate that into uh, curriculum and how we teach, um, and so that people could see that perspective, and so. That's been, you know, 25 years ago, and I've been really walking into this and wrestling in it and trying to figure out, you know, the best way to go about actually looking at things through a a different lens and a certain type of lens. And I love how you you walk through the story of the Bible, and it's actually it's story based, it's narrative based, and that we could actually start to use it as a lens to view our modern culture in it. Can you just take us a little bit through through this book um, and what you're trying to accomplish through it um, and what is your framework as you started to to enter into it? Yeah, thank you. Um, I the, the book is, is really born out of a sense of frustration, I suppose it was, that I had as an undergraduate. Um, so I was an undergraduate at a big secular university in an arts faculty studying all sorts of philosophical and theoretical approaches week after week, churning essays out about them, you know, Marx, Freud, Nietzsche, Foucault, Derrida, um, Kristeva, etc., etc. Um, and I was also attending um, a Bible-believing church where I was challenged to take the Bible seriously and apply it to the whole of life. And there, there was really no space in my life at that time where those two worlds could talk to each other, where, where the Bible could sit around the table with these theoretical approaches and make the case for its own view of reality. You know, in, in my university units, the, there was no way that the Bible would be allowed <laughs> in. Um, and, and it wasn't particularly discussed um, at my church. And so I guess I, I wanted to get that conversation going. Um, I wanted the Bible to have a voice in this theoretical mm. debate. Um, and the the two things that helped me to see how that might happen were my first Bible overview that I did at a Christian summer camp I went on. I was a junior leader and we had a, um, as well as sort of helping with the washing up and things like that, we, we had a, a teaching program and one of the streams was a Bible overview. It was just mind-blowing. It was, mm. it, it was a real penny-drop moment to see that the Bible isn't just a collection of stories from God with with meanings, but it, but it is, from the first page to the last, one complex, multi-layered, unfolding story. Yeah. And not just a story within reality, but a story of reality, you know, in inside which you can live. And that a story that makes sense of the world, a true story that makes sense. And the second thing that that happened. Uh, was that I read Augustine's City of God mm. uh, one summer on on holiday with my parents. I think it probably rained all week. I can't remember. But anyway, <laughs> we had a lot of lot of time for reading, so I plowed through the City of God. Um, look, most of it, uh, if I'm being honest, went over my head. But the, yeah. the bit that I did understand was that Augustine was using this Bible overview framework to critique late Roman culture, like mm. all of it. You know, it's it's games, it's religion, it's civic life, it's it's superstition, it's it's military, everything. And he could do it all through this Bible overview framework. And it I think I, I realized from that point on this is this is the pattern to use. Like Augustine has has set the bar for yeah. the way to do cultural criticism here. It it is a narrative framework that makes sense of it for us. Um and then, you know, year after year, just chipping away, reading different things, putting little pieces of the jigsaw together. Um, over time, I I sort of built up this framework for trying to understand modern and contemporary Western culture um, in, in a way analogous to the way in which Augustine tries to grapple with late Roman culture. Mm. Yeah. 
I love that. Can you give us uh, an example? So if you're actually then grappling with modern culture um, and trying to look at it through this this lens, can you give us an example of, of something within modern culture that we could start to to look at it and to walk through how we could apply this uh, just to, to view the culture? Yeah, I... Um, I think there's a great pathos, a great sadness, a, almost a tragedy, I suppose, in, in the way that modern culture thinks about human beings. And I think a way to get a handle on it is through the idea of the image of God in Genesis chapter 1. And the, the wonderful thing about the image of God motif is that it does two things really, really well. First of all, it, it exalts and dignifies human beings. So, you know, of, of everything in the whole created order, um, only human beings and every human being is in the image of God. So, you know, not a, the, the Milky Way that you can look up uh, to at night, not a, a beautiful school of whales, not an ocean, not a sunset, not, not the greatest piece of music ever written. None of those are in the image of God, only human beings. And therefore, for there's an incredible dignity and specialness to being human mm -hmm. in this world. But the image of God also humbles human beings because precisely we're not God, we're the image of God, you know. So um, lest we should think too much of ourselves, um, the image of God reminds us, you know, you're not the top dog <laughs> in in reality. God God is, and, and you are in his image. Um, and there's no sense in the image of God doctrine that those two things are in conflict mm. with each other yeah it's not that we're half dignified and half humble no they're, they're, there's a beautiful harmony between them. Mm. but then you you look at what modernity does with um anthropology and, and you find that it it splits these two tendencies and tends to emphasize either one of them or the other makes half of that beautiful biblical harmony into the whole truth and so on one hand you've got writers like Thomas Hobbes at the dawn of modernity in, in his foundational book of political thought, Leviathan, saying in the first chapter that human beings are, are essentially machines. We're just cogs yeah. and springs and strings and, and wheels. That's, that's really all there is to us, so let's not fool ourselves. Yeah, and there, um, there are a, a whole sort of lorry load of writers in modernity that you could gather together to say that either we're fundamentally machines or we're, we're fundamentally just like the other animals there's nothing different to us mm. and and that's taking this this idea of, of humbling um you know human beings are in genesis one made on the same day as the other animals that there, 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 there's some truth somewhere yeah in that idea but it's, it's been distorted and twisted and blown out of all proportion and dismembered from its twin truth of of, of human dignity mm. and so modernity does that on one side and on the other side, it's got this huge sort of bloated, hyper-inflated idea of human beings that, that basically presents us as, as gods. Yeah. And, and John Milbank is really good on this in the early chapters of Theology and Social Theory. He shows how the, the idea of the voluntarist God in, in theological history, this idea of a God whose will is unchallengeable. And voluntarism can get really extreme about this so for example you know if god wants two and two to make 11 he can yeah because the laws of logic are no impediment like that sort of will that that level of untrammeled will he shows how how modernity takes that idea from god and actually uses that as a pattern for human will hmm. and tries to think of human beings as beings who can remake reality in our own image whose wills conquer everything who can decide for ourselves what is good and evil in the same way that God does, yeah. and for that to be valid, who can decide our reality, who can decide our identity, and on and on and on. Um, and and how, how that is a modern anthropology. And so in modernity, you've got these two incompatible extreme ideas yeah. of what a human being is. And, and the modern world sort of says to us, you're a machine. Oh, and by the way, you're also a god. Now go and live your life. Yeah. And that is psychologically incredibly burdensome. You, you know, the, there's, 
you can understand, you can begin to understand why it is so hard psychologically to live in modernity and to make sense of ourselves in modernity. If the message we're given is, um, you know, you're, you're no different to, to the computer sitting in front of you fundamentally in the way that you work, yeah. you're just more complex than that. Oh, and also you're a voluntary scholar. Um, and the, the idea that that can be an easy position to inhabit is, is just ridiculous. That is incredibly hard, incredibly stressful to live in. And so the way that, that you read that from a biblical point of view, or, or the word that I use in the book, the way that you diagonalize that opposition huh. is to say, there's a tiny bit of distorted and twisted truth in both of those positions. But the problem is that they've cut it off from the rest of the biblical truth. Yeah. The, the beautiful thing about the Bible is that all the truths exist in an ecosystem with each other uh, in, in sort of a, a perfect harmony, perfect um, sort of way of coexisting, if you like. And what modernity does um, again and again is it takes little scraps of biblical truth, mm. blows them up to be the whole truth, twists them, cuts them off from all the other biblical truths and, and expects that to work in mm. terms of a, a, a valid way of, of living in the world. And um, yeah, so I think we're calling people back to um, a wonderful, wholesome, healthy, exciting biblical harmony uh, away from the, the shards and splinters of, of the modern way of looking at things. Hmm. And that takes a lot of wisdom and discernment as we're walking through life and starting to to look at at the world as we're seeing that, oh, there is some truth to uh, what they're saying, and there's some truth to this viewpoint, uh, but they ha don't have the complete truth. They don't have the the other side, and it seems like there's there's a lot of black and white. Of we're blowing it up to this is the 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 only way, the only truth. Where there is some nuance to it. How do we start to interact with the world through this nuanced way? This gray where we're trying to make sense of the world and we want some wisdom of God to do that? It's a wonderful question. I think it's a really deep question. Um, I think the first thing to recognize is that it's not that each of the modern positions has half of the truth and what you need to do is simply split the difference between them. So mm -hmm. you, you don't start with the two anthropologies of we're just machines and we're gods and say, well, let's say then that we're half machines and half gods, because that's not a biblical view. Yeah. It's um, the, the idea of the image of God is not a half and half thing. So it's, it's not about splitting the difference. I think the, the best pattern for the best answer to the question that you've asked is in 1 Corinthians 1, in the way that Paul engages with the, some dominant values of his day. So, um, you know, he, he looks out in the world around him and he sees that Jews demand miraculous signs and Greeks seek wisdom. You know, there, there are two things that these two different communities really covet and value and pride in, in possessing. And he does two things with those values. And I think we're very good at doing either one or the other, but it's rare that we'll do both. The first thing that he does is he draws a radical antithesis between those cultural values and the gospel. You know, he says, for example, Greeks, you seek wisdom, but the word of the cross is foolishness. Uh. Uh, in other words, this, you can't just keep on going seeking wisdom in the way that you are, in a straight line, continue on, and arrive at the cross. Mm. The cross is not wise in the way that you think wisdom ought to be understood. Um, there's so there's a radical break, there's a discontinuity between your value and the gospel. And if that was all that he did, you know, you'd think that he was sort of pushing what H. Richard Niebuhr would call a Christ against culture paradigm. Whatever the culture yeah. is saying, the gospel is the opposite. And, and that's what some Christian cultural commentators do today. They always simply put the gospel in radical opposition to whatever's going on in the culture. Culture says A, gospel says A. Z, sorry. Z. Yeah. <laughs> Sad <laughs> words. That, okay. <laughs> Thank you. Inter international podcast. Yeah. Um, and, but he doesn't. He goes on a couple of verses later um, to say that the, the foolishness of God 
is wiser than human wisdom. Hmm. So at that point, what's he doing? He's putting them, if you like, on a scale of wisdom. So he's putting the, the wisdom that the Greeks are looking for and the foolishness of God on this wisdom scale. And he's saying the, the foolishness of God is, is higher up that wisdom scale. It's more wise hmm. than the Greek wisdom. And so at that point, he's, he's issuing, if you like, a challenge to the Greeks. He says, if you're really serious about searching for wisdom, are you willing to look for it in the place where you would least think it to, to be found? In yeah. other words, the foolishness of a condemned criminal in your eyes, dying a painful death and a shameful death on a cross. And his challenge is, if you are willing to look for wisdom there, you will find a depth and a fullness and a richness of wisdom that will far exceed anything you currently think of under that term of wisdom. So, so he's saying there that this foolishness of God is actually the fulfillment of your quest. Mm. If you really want wisdom, you're only going to find the fullness of it in the foolishness of God. And the brilliance of Paul's approach in 1 Corinthians 1 is he does both of those things. So the idea that the foolishness of God is the fulfillment of human wisdom, that the quest for human wisdom, doesn't water down the idea that there's an antithesis. Yeah. You've still got to completely break apart your idea of what wisdom is and rebuild it differently in order to arrive at God's foolishness. You can't just bolt it onto a Greek idea of wisdom. It doesn't fit. Yeah. So the, the antithesis is, is insurmountable. You've got, to, you've got to hammer the antithesis 100%, if you like. Mm. But you've also got to be all out on fulfillment. You can't simply say the gospel is um, incompatible with your idea of wisdom. If you want to be biblical about it, if you want to follow this 1 Corinthians 1 pattern, you've also got to say, and the gospel is the ultimate fulfillment of everything you long for mm. when you talk about wisdom. And it's it's that combination, I think, that's the, um, the, the beautiful biblical harmony that, that, that I think Christian cultural criticism um, is at its best when it's doing both of those. Yeah. And rather than simply saying, um, no, the, the gospel is always incompatible with culture, or simply always saying everything that you think you want, dear world, find it in Christ without breaking it down and rebuilding it. And, mm. and I think our cultural criticism tends sometimes to one are either of those two poles, but Paul shows how you can hold them together. Mm. I love that. And thinking through, you know, a, a lot of my work, one of the things that I do is I, I lead a missions agency that that goes and shares Jesus around the world. And so I'm training missionaries a lot of times to to really assess culture, to look at culture, to dive deep, to, to be very thoughtful um, and to know uh, what is What's going to be good news for the culture there? What are what are the things that they're longing for, and how does Jesus fulfill that? So how how then do we go into a culture and start to um, critically look at culture and then be curious of culture so that we can start to learn about those those things where there is some truth that they're longing for that the gospel has an answer for and we could actually say here here it is um and so what are some ways that we could start to analyze culture that way i think that again the pauline pattern is to well in act 17 is to walk around with your eyes open isn't it you know i, would, yeah. I was having a look around athens and you know this is this is what i spotted um and and he's obviously read his his greek poets as well. So I think you can't you can't do this on the fly. You can't just read a crib sheet, you know, or a, a one-page summary of a particular culture and expect to be able to engage with it in any meaningful way that the people who live in that culture will will say yes you you've understood me. And I think again Augustine is a brilliant example here. So he's he's a consummate insider to late Roman culture. You know, he teaches rhetoric in Carthage and then later on in, in Rome. And he, you can tell in the city of God, he really admires Cicero. And it's not just a, a pretend admiration. He, he understands the beauty of Ciceronian mm. prose and, and the way in which Cicero is thinking. And, and he says so. Um, not, not that he agrees, of 
podcast with everything Cicero says, but you can nevertheless say this is really good writing and really profound writing. Um, but crucially, Augustine is also an outsider, um, partly because of his biography. So, you know, he's born in North Africa. He's, he's not at the heart of the Roman Empire. He's got a, a pagan father and a, a, a wonderful Christian mother, Monica. And so he's sort of outside inside biographically, but the main thing that places him at an odd angle to Roman culture is, is just that he's, he's so steeped in, in the Bible and he sees things through biblical lenses, not through Roman lenses. Um, and, and it's that wonderful combination of being an insider and an outsider at the same time that allows him to be such an incisive cultural critic, I think. And I guess then that's that's something that it's good for us to try to aim for yeah. in our own cultural critique. To to be an insider to the point of view where you can see why, you know, the modern equivalent of Cicero sparkles to Romans, why they think Cicero not only is is speaking truthfully, but is speaking brilliantly. You can see why people get excited about the bits of culture they get excited about. And you can explain that in a way that those people who are within that culture will say, yes, you've understood it. Those are the words that I would use to describe it. You, you, you get me. But you've also got to have the equally important element of being an outsider yeah. and being able to look at it with the, you know, with the eyes of not someone who's completely steeped in it, but almost, you know, an anthropologist mm -hmm. studying it from the outside, coming to a foreign culture with a notebook uh, and noting all its, its oddities and its Worky weirdnesses, um, and I think if if we can do that, which I think is what Paul is doing in Athens and what Augustine is doing with Roman culture, um, then we'll be in a great position to to speak a word to the culture that can be heard, um, but that's also surprising and different, and it's not yeah. just sort of polishing a mirror to reflect the culture back to itself. Mm. Yeah, I think that's that's a, a crucial point to be an insider and an outsider to be able to. To go in to know the culture well, uh, there's a lot of. I mean, uh, I'll go into an American perspective. There's there's encampments of the church that are are just opposed to culture. They don't want to be insiders of culture um, and to be able to speak that language. They they want to just stay opposed to the culture and not speak the language to actually win people. And some people are so much insiders that they aren't really that much of an outsider at all and don't see much critically. Um, and so how, as, as communities of Christ followers, then how can we, we help look at things critically to engage culture in such a way where culture is saying, yes, that, that actually makes sense. I, that's a, uh, that actually is, is hitting what I'm I'm longing for, hitting what I'm I'm looking for. These are the words that I want to use, um, and not just say. I mean, a lot of times culture thinks that Christians are just against everything. Um, we're we're known for what we're against, right? Um, and so that's not helpful in a culture. Is just to be known of what we're against. How are we doing that as Christ followers? How do we get into that place? I think two things are necessary, and every Christian community will almost certainly be better at one of these than the other. And so, so I guess every, I don't know, pastor or, 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 or missionary leader, and every individual Christian, every family group needs to sort of audit themselves to work out which, which of these needs most work for me or for us. And the, the first one is just having a really thick, formative Christian community. Um, and this is about being an outsider to the culture. Yeah. Um, that that with as as Augustine was, as Paul was, we're so steeped in the rhythms and patterns of a biblical way of looking at the world that we never completely feel at home in um in the ambient culture, whatever that culture is. Yeah. And and I think that needs more than a one hour church service on a Sunday morning. You know, the, the world is catechizing us mm -hmm. very aggressively and very effectively from the moment we wake up, usually, to the moment we go to sleep, through our smartphones, through advertising, through all the appliances in our house. It's, it's not just 
just ideas. It's not just speaking to us. It's shaping our view of the world through the objects around us and through the rhythms and patterns of our daily life and through the unspoken expectations of us. And it's doing that really, really well. Yeah. And so in order to be able to to get an angle on that that's not just accepting all of that unthinkingly, you need a really rich Christian community that, mm-hmm. that's functioning not just on the level of ideas, uh, but of but of habits and, and behaviors that's deeply forming Christians to be able to to inhabit this biblical story. Um, again, you know, from the moment we wake up to the moment we go to sleep. And that's crucial uh, in order to be an effective outsider mm. to the culture. Yeah. Uh, but the, the second thing, I guess, is to be able to um, understand and engage with, with aspects of culture as an insider. And, and I think this will be different for every community. So, you know, I, I'm a philosopher and I sort of, I'm paid to go deeply into complex ideas and pull them apart, but that's not everyone's job. Yeah. You know, Paul has this wonderful image of the Church of Christ as a body. And, you know, academics are probably a, a toenail somewhere <laughs> down the bottom. You know, we've, we've got our thing, we're helpful, we do, we do our stuff. But, you know, to say to everybody, you must be a toenail too, just because I am, would, would be ridiculous. And, yeah. and you know, would, would be a travesty of that picture of the body. So not everybody needs to take a deep dive into the sort of details of culture. But I think to, to be aware, you know, whenever we watch a film or walk down the street and see a bunch of adverts, you know, to, to have a reflexive thought of, um, you know, just really simply, how does this fit with the biblical story? What mm-hmm. what what is it reflecting of the biblical story, and what's different? And by biblical story, there, I think it is simplest. We just mean creation, fall, redemption. Yeah. You know, let's 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 just have that as a little framework, and you know, you can do that in ten twenty seconds. I think for aspects of culture, or you could sit down and have a you know a small um, group Bible study group discussion. Yeah. Let's take a film, let's read it through that lens of creation, fall, redemption, which is really all that Augustine's doing over a thousand pages. Yeah, um, and just just try and understand it that in that way, mm. and and that might help you more to to become an insider. Mm. Does does that does that help? Yeah, that helps a lot. You know, one thing that that might uh, flesh it out a little bit. Do you have an example of a film um, that you're familiar with that you could do a little reflection um, quickly? A really good question, uh, Joshua. Let me think. Okay, so I will talk about Avengers Endgame. Which is, I hope, a film that that most people have seen by now, and I hope that by by talking about it, I won't be spoiling it for anyone. All right, um, spoilers ahead for Avengers Endgame. Yeah, <laughs> if if you haven't seen it, shock horror, cartoon film, um, the the good guys win. <laughs> I hope that's not that's not a scandal, Dave. Um, and and that's probably where you'd start, isn't it? Yeah. So so the shape the shape of that film, the shape of the the you know. Um, Infinity War and Endgame is that you you introduce a, a seemingly insurmountable problem into the plot. You know, so so here's this incredibly powerful guy Thanos who's going to wipe out half the world. And um, you reach a crisis point where it seems that all is lost. Um, you know, I can't remember exactly where that is in the film, but there's one point where it looks as though all their plans to to save the universe have, have been dashed to pieces. Um, and uh, it looks as though there's no hope. And then out of the jaws of defeat, um, surprise, surprise, uh, the superheroes, the Avengers, managed to, to drag the most wonderful of victories in this, in this amazing final battle. Um, and there is both a sense in which that is uncannily Bible-like and a sense in which it's very not unlike the Bible. And the sense in which it's like the Bible is that that shape of a story introduce a problem, look as though it's all lost, final victory uh, is is sort of wrested from the jaws of defeat. Well, that's that's sin and the cross and the resurrection and, yeah. then, and then the final judgment, isn't it? Um, and that is the shape that the stories that most resonate 
certainly within a Western frame, take. You know, you read, see film after film after film, book after book after book. Um, and that is the shape of the story. And there's no accident there. That is a gospel shape. But of course, the difference is who does the redeeming? Yeah. Um, and so the, the modern view, again, again and again and again, in film after film after film, is that we save ourselves. Um, and, and that is, um, at least in part, what's happening in Endgame. It's the, it's the Avengers themselves who bring uh, victory uh, out of the jaws of defeat. And, and so you can see that it's following a creation fall redemption schema, but it's significantly and fundamentally rewriting that schema. It's, it's parasitic upon a Christian frame. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's, saying that we are our own saviors. Look, I, I re realize that sort of MCU geeks, as I'm saying this, will say that there's lots of <laughs> details of this film that I'm I'm not um, engaging with. Look, I'm, I'm trying to do this in a minute or two. Yeah, have, have, have mercy great. on me. You're doing great. Geek. Um, and I'm sure there's more to say on this, but I think this is a good place to start in terms yeah. of the film. Um, I think that's that helpful. It, 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 yeah, parasitic on a Christian framework, which most of modernity is. It's yeah. taking Christian ideas, but decontextualizing them, rewriting significant mm. parts of them, and and presenting them in a way, you know. And th here we're circling back to one Corinthians one. In order to to sort of bring Endgame back to the Christian story, you'd need to both completely subvert it yeah. and completely fulfill it. Yeah. Um, you'd need to say. This is absolutely not what the gospel is. We do not save ourselves in any means, form, or fashion. And yet, what you're looking for in the terms of a climactic, wonderful, cathartic, fulfilling end to a story where everything turns out well in the end, despite the fact that it looks as though it's impossible, that the deepest, richest, most resonant human fulfillment of that narrative arc is, is God's story of reality in the Bible. Yeah. So it's fulfillment and antithesis again. Wow. Wow. I I think that's so helpful to to walk us through what that actually looks like to start to to create critique things and to to look at things through this framework. You know, I'm not in the the philosoph philosophical thought um circles and actually really engaging in that philosophy world. Um so how if you've if you've used some of this um, in thought when people are doing some some thinking within philosophy, what does it look like having this standing up to other modern thinkers um, in the philosophy world? It looks... Um... I'm trying not to repeat myself and say that it looks like both a subversion of fulfillment of eternity, because I think your listeners might be getting slightly tired of that that constant refrain uh, in all of my answers. Um, I, I need to acknowledge that this idea of subversion fulfillment comes from a, a, a colleague of mine, a, a brilliant Christian thinker, Dan Strange, who gets it from the missiologist J.H. Bavink. Uh, Bavink has this idea of subversive fulfillment, which is a, essentially a way of talking about this one Corinthians one dynamic. Um, I, I think you see it happening in thinkers like Oliver O'Donovan, uh, Richard Borkham, John Milbank, Esther Meek. I think she's got a, a, a brilliant way of refiguring modern ways of knowing in a biblical frame in a way that both subverts and fulfills them. So, so Esther Meek's sort of approach is to understand knowledge in terms of, of a covenant framework mm -hmm. with reality. Um, so the, the reality, and, and I, I hope I get the language right here, and apologies to Esther if I don't, sort of invites itself to be known, invites mm -hmm. itself to come into relationship with us. And of course, this idea of covenant is a profoundly biblical idea. Um, yeah. you know, covenant, covenant theology is a whole, is a whole branch of theology. And so, so rethinking a modern way of knowledge, which essentially divides the knower from the known, from Descartes onwards. Mm. Yeah. And in, in many ways, and th there's a passage in Francis Bacon that, that's very 
clear about this, but I think it's implicit in a lot of modern knowledge. It's it's a, a violent battle between the knower and the known. We have to wrest knowledge out of reality to to mm. wring knowledge out of out of the world. Um, and and Esther really overturns that and says that that to know fully is to enter into covenant relationship with. Mm. Now, of course, that's eminently true of our relationship with God and with other human beings. But, yeah. but she makes, I think, a persuasive argument to say that that is also the way that we know everything in the world. And just by shifting that paradigm of knowing onto a biblical frame, all sorts of consequences cascade out of that mm. for the way that we relate to the natural world, the environment, for example, um, uh, the way that human relationships are figured within society. Um, and it, it's not that modernity is simply subverted. It, its quest for knowledge is, is also fulfilled. In that covenant paradigm, mm -hmm. uh, and so you know, we again, inevitably, we we back, we're right back at one Corinthians one. Yeah, yeah, I think that's helpful. That actually brings us into this place where we're not just uh, servants to our to our iPhones, and so we could Google everything, and we have knowledge about something. Right, I could get facts, but it actually brings us into you know what. What brain scientists talk about is our autobiographical memory of the things that can actually project into the future is that when we actually know something and we are covenantly known, we actually enter into that story of knowledge um, where then we can project ourselves into the future of it as opposed to facts and figures, which actually we can't project into the future of facts and figures. So it doesn't actually really impact the way that I interact in the world as much. Um, so I think that's that's crucial as we move forward um, and to actually then start to pull out what this knowledge is and how do we know and what is what is that I think that's a, a crucial thing that's that's pretty fascinating to me Joshua can I say something controversial and then try and explain why it's not quite so controversial <laughs> as yeah. I seem at the beginning um, facts are not real okay that's my controversial statement and <laughs> At this point, all the, the prejudices that people might have about me studying postmodern philosophers are going to come flooding in, and they're going to say, "I, I knew it! I knew it!" You know, he was—he—he uh, he doesn't think anything's it. Um, what I mean by that is that there is a reality that can be known, and it is God's reality. But God is not a fact in the way that modernity understands that term, mm -hmm. which is a state of affairs about the world shown of all um, personality, shown of all value, that the world that God has... So there, there are two ways of looking at the world, and this is John Frey. Either everything that's personal reduces sooner or later to the impersonal, and reality is fundamentally impersonal, yeah. which is a, a modern view of reality. Mm -hmm. Or the view of reality according to which everything impersonal sooner or later reduces to the personal God, because he is, as Cornelius Van Til would put it, back of everything. Mm. Um, and and those are two very different universes to live in. And if, if everything is impersonal, then it might be possible to, to wrangle with the idea of fact as ultimate. Um, but but not, I think, in the world that, that God has created, because his reality that we can know, you know so this yeah. is not relativism, God has created a world that we can know, but it's not a world of fact. Um, that are dislocated from any uh, m meaningfulness or any a any ethical value. You see this right back in 1 Corinthians 1, that it was so and that it was good. You know, God saw that it was good, are both part of reality. It's not that God creates some sort of neutral, um, inhuman, abstract world of facts and then says, right, let's give these facts some meaning. Um, no, the meaningfulness and the that the goodness of creation is hard-baked into it at the same level as the facts. And so when modernity conjures with facts, it's actually dealing with abstraction, abstracted mm -hmm. from God, the way that God has made the world. And, and that's the sense in which facts are unreal. Mm -hmm. they're, they're at one level of remove from reality. They're pretending yeah. that reality is not fundamentally personal, that back of everything isn't a creator god but but our impersonal forces mm. 
uh, and that those have absolutely no ethical weight uh, whatsoever. Mm. So I hope it's not quite as controversial as it is. It's not quite, well, not to me, at least. Maybe maybe to a few people, but not to me. And I, I love that you, you get into that place of, of the personal and the personal God. I think we we need to, to move in that direction as we're thinking about uh, about life, the way that we interact uh, in the world and the way that we view the world. Um, so as then, hopefully we're inspiring some people to go and to do a deep dive in your book because it is it is a a deep dive and it's uh there's a lot of great great things in there what are some things you want the readers to get out of to really start to apply to their life i i don't want to prescribe what readers will get out of it um i i think there are a lot of different things that people could potentially finding the book, you know, and, and, and God's spirit works in, in different ways in different people. But but perhaps just a handful of things that that some readers by God's grace might find in there are a way of being on the front foot in public debate about the questions that really matter from a Christian point of view. So it it's often it often feels, doesn't it, living as a Christian today, is that the only time that Christians ever appear in the news media is to be beaten over the head with a stink yeah. about something that we believe or something that we've done. And, you know, sometimes that's right. You know, Christians have behaved abominably. In some Christians have behaved abominably in recent years. And when it's when they do that, it's true, it's right and proper that that be called out. So I'm not I'm not criticizing that. But um, I think there's also something that's missed from the public debate when the Christian voice is, is frozen out on the prejudice that that it's got nothing to add that it's simply a, a, a regressive reactionary hurtful damaging voice because the bible does have surprising constructive subversively fulfilling perspectives to bring to a lot of the debates that we're struggling with as a whole society today and if that voice is lost from the conversation then i think the whole society loses something not not just christians and so i hope that the book might help people to find a, a way of sort of situating ourselves in the world and a vocabulary to use to, to be, you know, humbly but confidently on the front foot yeah. in public uh, and, and not simply uh, always reacting to, to attacks on Christianity. Mm. I hope it might help some people perhaps who are in the situation that I was as an undergraduate, you know, living in these two different worlds, you know, yeah. the, your studies in the arts faculty with all these, uh, all these theoretical positions and then you know your bible teaching churches to, to find a way to bring the bible to that t table to, to to that theoretical conversation and to let the bible um speak into and reconfigure and critique those theoretical positions um and and i guess i i just hope that that the book might encourage christians who do have a heart for culture to press more deeply into the Bible in order to be better cultural critics. I think sometimes there's an unspoken assumption that the the best cultural criticism sort of hovers 30,000 feet above the biblical texts and sort of wrangles with theoretical and philosophical and even theological concepts, but doesn't actually dig into the scriptures. And I think Augustine puts a bomb under that paradigm and says, no, the, the best cultural criticism, and I think Augustine's City of God is the best cultural criticism that Christians have produced in 2,000 years, presses deeper and deeper and deeper into the Bible. Yeah. Both the overall shape of the Bible, creation, fall, redemption, but also individual passages as well. Mm -hmm. And if, if Christians can get a, a taste and an excitement for leaning into the Bible as a means to do cultural criticism better, then then that would be wonderful. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's great. There's a couple questions I have here at the end. One, uh, if you could go back to your 21 year old self, what advice would you give? Um, I think I would say, uh, keep, keep mistrusting yourself and trusting God and be patient. So I think at 21, I had very little sense of the things that I now articulate in the book, but I'd listened, I think by that point, to an incredibly helpful talk by Nicholas Walterstorff that's floating around somewhere on the 
Biola website, I think, where he said, Christian academics, don't try to reinvent your your discipline overnight. You're not going to be an Alvin Plantinga in the first year of your PhD. Uh, he said, hang in there. There's some questions that you won't be able to answer. That's okay. Give it time. Um, learn your discipline and, and learn the Bible and be patient about it. And that's just been incredibly helpful for me mm. over the years. Yeah. So I'd say to, to my 21-year-old self, watch the Walter Stuff video, uh, learn from his wisdom, take your time. You won't be able to do everything tomorrow. Mm, that's good. Anything you've been reading or watching lately you could recommend? Yes, certainly. How long have we got? <laughs> <laughs> uh, there, there's a brilliant book by by uh, Chatro and Alan that's coming out soon called The Augustine Way mm. that I, I had the, the, the privilege of reading recently to provide an endorsement. That's just really, really helpful. Showing how Augustine provides a, a paradigm for contemporary cultural uh, criticism. Um, just finished a really interesting collection of essays called, um, now let me get this right. Uh, oh, it's based on, on Kuiper's stone lectures and it's, it's called something for a secular age, a Kuiper for a secular age, um, Christianity for a secular age, something like that. I'm not sure, but it's, it's a series of reflections on, on how Kuiper's stone lectures can be re, um, sort of deployed in in the 21st century which is just really really helpful um and i'm i'm reading uh, some van till at the moment mm. and just coming to him it's a while since i've read van till um and I, i'm just finding really refreshing the the way that he approaches um modern culture with with a set of really crisp concepts that help to make things visible in the way that modernity operates that you wouldn't necessarily notice if he hadn't come up with these with these concepts. Um, principle of continuity, principle of discontinuity, that sort of thing. Um, it, he's, just, he's just a very incisive thinker. He's one of those thinkers that you don't have to agree with everything he says yeah. in order to get a lot out of his, his method and his approach, which, which I'm, I'm finding at the moment. Mm, that's great. Where can people uh, connect with you and your work and uh, get your latest book and, and your other works? Yeah, I've got a bunch of um, Christian resources on the site, thinkingthroughthebible.com, or one word, um, and people might find some helpful things there. Um, you can find me on Twitter at Dr. Dr. Chris Watkin. Um, and the, the book... There have been supply chain issues. I think the book is quite hard to get as we're recording this at the moment. The, the publishers tell me the Westminster Bookstore is the best place to place an order right at the moment. Okay. Uh, but I, I believe that it's coming back on Amazon within a few days. That's what I've been told. Anyway. All right. That's great. Well, hopefully uh, it will be available um, and readily available so people run out and go get that. Um, so, Chris, I just uh, thank you very much for this conversation. It was enlightening. It's fascinating to be able to think through culture uh, through a biblical lens uh, and to think of the biblical story of creation, fall, and redemption as we reflect on culture, interact, and hopefully now we can start to be uh, on the front lines, the front foot of what culture is saying and in these conversations, these debates that actually the Bible has something to say to us in this modern age. And it's not a dead relic, but it's a living, uh, breathing uh, thing that we could actually start to interpret all of life through. So thank you very much. I really appreciate it. Joshua, it's been a huge pleasure for me. Thank you so much for having me on. Thanks. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. If you want to see more episodes like this, go to patreon.com slash shifting culture and become a monthly patron of the show. You can help us produce more episodes so that we can see the body of Christ look more like Jesus. If you become a patron on patreon.com slash shifting culture, uh, you will get early access to episodes. You will get episode guides. You will get bonus shows, hopefully, and more. 
So go to patreon.com slash shifting culture and become a monthly patron. Also leave a rating and review on Apple podcasts. Uh, it really helps us out and helps us find new listeners to the show and just go and share this podcast with your friends, your family, your network, people that you think would enjoy it as well. Thank you again for listening to the show. I hope you have a great week.